chew on that one um, in 30 minutes. I'll explain it all. Don't worry, 30 minutes. Um, you know what? Let's just jump right into Scripture. It may be a strange place to go, but um, you'll see the incredible things God can do through his words. So we're going to Genesis 4, the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, verses 1 right through to 17. Follow along or just watch the screens. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain was a, uh, a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the first, firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and away from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after his, the name of his son, Enoch. So, where do we get the meaning of life from there? Okay, let's start here. Before we get into the actual sermon, what you're going to see today is something, uh, yes, I'm going to attempt to show what the scripture says about meaning, but the way we hammer the scripture, the way we don't let it off the hook, the way I'm going to ask it constant questions is something I'm hoping will rub off on all of you. Um, in The Invisible Man, you know the movie, not, not the Abbott and Costello, um, the book. Um, in the book, The Invisible Man, there's a, a guy, he's a scientist, Dr. Griffin, and he develops a formula, a potion, that makes him invisible. Now, the rest of the book is his attempt to make a potion that will take a, reverse the effect. And what you find in the way he f furiously uh, researches is he approaches his task like a scientist. And this is the way we want to approach the Bible. I'll explain what I mean by that. I'm not being too sacrilegious here. You want to approach the Bible the way this man approaches science. He looks as an observer first. You don't come necessarily with conclusions. You have ideas, but you don't want to come and say, um, so for instance, for this sermon, I didn't come and say, I'm going to preach about the, the, the meaning of life and then rummage through scripture to find a scripture that matches what I'm thinking. I instead was reading the Bible. And I'm, in reading it, I'm like, boy, you know, this really talks about meaning. And th from that, we want to interpret Scripture. You don't come and say, I'm feeling down today, so the Bible's going to make me feel better. 
That's not the way it's used, okay? So what we're going to do as a scientist today, we're going to approach Scripture openly. We're going to ask it questions, and don't be ashamed to ask the Bible questions. God can take it, okay? Um, and constantly say things like, why is that word there? Who is this? Why did God say that? Why does God let Cain kill Abel? These sorts of questions, well, I won't answer that one, by the way. Um, but those things, you have to ask the text, wrestle with it. And if you do, you are, you're going to see um, what the, the invisible man saw. He didn't just investigate a potion to save himself. Because, um, you know, most scientists are studying how to fix cancer, cure cancer and other diseases. But they won't necessarily personally benefit from it. They're doing something, and they're trying to find a cure that will benefit others, but maybe not themselves. But the invisible man was passionate because he knew what he was working on spoke to his life directly. And that's the way you and I need to approach Scripture, okay? That openly, to say, what is the Cain story? Is, is, is he just trying to tell us what happens? This is just a story of what happens to Cain? Or should we be paying attention because this is the first story we hear about what mankind does when it walks away from God and God pushes him away? So Cain, as a wanderer, will give us an idea of our wandering, why we wander, what the purpose is, if we look at it carefully. So three, there's three ways today where our culture in Canada and, well, in Erkip, or this area, will approach meaning. When you bring up the question of what is the meaning of life, there's three ways you can answer it today. One is to say, there's lots of meaning. Meaning, but it comes from a God. There's a God, he provides meaning. The second way is to say, yeah, there's no meaning from any God. I just make it up as I go. I make my own meaning. You know, this is the, the cry of many people. And the third one, which is the fastest growing opinion in our culture, is there's no meaning. It's all random. Do your best. Live accordingly. Just try to survive knowing that there's no hope that you may be building up nice kids, but for what? They're all going to die eventually. You know, we're all nothing, aren't we? So this is the most growing view of meaning. The problem with that view is this, and we're going to, the scripture po points to it. It's unlivable. doesn't matter who you are. If you're Richard Dawkins, the great atheist, great with small g, by the way, atheist, he doesn't even live by his own philosophy. He says, there's no such thing, there's no meaning in the world. And yet he believes that his task to, to stamp out Christianity is a meaningful pursuit. Doesn't he? Or does he think that's meaningless too? If so, why is he talking? And I'm not trying to be facetious. There's a contradiction. If there's no meaning, then start being brave enough to admit there's no meaning. If you are born without purpose and you die without purpose, be brave enough to say your life has no purpose. But the fact is, he doesn't believe it. Nobody believes it because no matter how staunchly we say one thing, there's always this sense in us that, but there is a point. There is a reason that I'm striving. There is a reason I work, why I love my kids, why I don't steal. There's a reason, isn't there? And it gets captured well by a poet, poetess, I guess, named Sylvia Plath. Sylvia Plath, American poet, commits suicide in 1963. Tragic, not a Christian, but in her diary, she touches on this problem that we all have. She says this, There are times when a feeling of expectancy comes to me, as if something is there just beneath the surface of my understanding, waiting for me to grasp it. It is the same tantalizing sensation when you almost remember a name but don't quite reach it. Perhaps someday the revelation will burst in upon me and I will see the other side of this monumental, grotesque joke, and then I'll laugh and I'll know what life is. 
You see, Sylvia Plath later commits suicide, thinking life is hopeless, but she couldn't escape the fact that there's something there, something just below her experience. I know the world seems miserable. I know there seems like there's no hope, but I still feel like there's hope. Why? Everybody has that feeling. Some of us just bury it down. Richard Dawkins, I shouldn't be picking on him. Maybe I should. Maybe he'll come one day if he hears this sermon. Um, We bury it down, but we deal with it in different ways. And if we look at the text, which we're going to do now, you're going to see three things come out of it. Our problem as humanity, the the wrong way we try to solve that problem, and then the right way. Pretty simple. Problem, the wrong way, and the right way. Okay? We're good? Okay, good. Let's move on. The first thing is our problem. Cain is driven from the face of God. When it says anywhere in the Old Testament, just so you know, anywhere in the Old Testament, remember Psalm 51:11, cast me not away from your presence, O Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Remember that? Well, that word presence is never the word presence. It's always, every single time, the Hebrew word for face, paneum. So what is being said is this, God, don't take your face from me. Because the Hebrews understood the favor of God and a relationship with God as being one of where you're face to face. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says an incredible thing. Right now we see as though in, in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. Now, Cain is driven from the face of God, and he says, this is more than I can bear. Well, that, if you ever read, the, well, read Ezekiel, for instance, or any of the Old Testament, the great fear of Israel is that they will be cut off from God. There's no greater, you can, you can, um, you can threaten anything you want to a Jew. But when you say in the Old Testament days, God will take his face from you, that should strike terror in their face. And it strikes terror terror in their hearts. And it does for Cain. But we shouldn't be too surprised. The reason we don't see um, everything here in this passage is because of the the wording. So Cain is pushed away from God. Okay? And if we look at how Cain responds when he is cut off from God, we're going to learn something about how we respond living in a world where we are also cut off from God to an extent. Because the actions of somebody right after they've been rebuked or smacked around is always interesting because what they always do is try to fill up the gap they just lost. If a child is rebuked because he, my, what do my kids get rebuked for? So many things. Um, they spill, uh, they're, being, they're wrestling at the dinner table and they spill a cup. I rebuke them, what happens? You notice that next second, they're very careful. They fill up the cup, they put it far away from them, and they behave. And that's because having been rebuked, they innately will try to fill up and make good on what they've lost. Cain has now been thrust from the presence of God, and the first things he does when he leaves tell us about what we do as well to try to regain what we lost. Okay? And this is the interesting part. Cain is told by God, you are a wanderer. You're going to be a wanderer in this world, well known. What you don't see is that God, when Cain then leaves, he goes to the land east of Eden, the land of Nod. The Hebrew word for wanderer is Nod. So God is saying in the Hebrew, you're a wanderer, and now you're looking for a home in the land of wandering. What does that mean? Is he going to find it? Imagine I threw you out of a plane and said, now put up a tent hammer those pegs. What are you going to do? You're going to say, I want to be safe. I want to be in a, a tent as I'm free falling, but there's nothing solid to be on. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is shifting sands, all right. 
Um, so this is the great challenge that humanity has. We desperately want to be stable. We want meaning, but we can't find it. We try in different ways to get it. We're going to talk about that in a second. We look at specifically what Cain does when he leaves. But this is the equivalent to it. You see, the existentialists weren't too far off. If you were around in the 60s, you would have known uh, the names of Jean-Paul Sartre and Albert Camus. Uh, and they were saying things like this. You know, humanity, there's no meaning. You're all tiny bubbles floating on the sea of nothingness. That's Sartre's very eloquent way of saying it. Now, he's right to an extent. Without God, that's exactly what you are. You are precisely floating in midair with no purpose. Um, and one way of looking at it is this. Have you ever heard the Greek myth called the myth of Sisyphus? Sisyphus was a, um, a guy who gets caught stealing um, uh, secrets and giving them to the mortals. So his task is you're, he's set at the bottom of a hill, and his job is now to push a hill, a, a rock, a giant boulder, up the hill for eternity. When it gets to the top of the hill, it will roll back, and he starts again for all of eternity. If that's hard for you to imagine, imagine you're working all day, and then somebody at the end of the day unplugs their computer, and you lose everything. You lose all of your data, and then they plug it in and say, well, start over. And then at the end again, plug it out and you keep losing it. Now, is that not a meaningless life when you're doing things but building nothing? And that is exactly what the condition we are in. When I say the first point today is that we have a problem, that's the problem you and I have. We've been set adrift without an anchor, but we desperately want to stop floating, and we can't find it. And Cain is trying to find it somewhere where he can't find it, and just like we are. Okay, so that's the depressing first point. Okay? My fo you following me so far? All right. Second point. So here's the wrong way. Now, how do we wrongly try? We rightly try to get this right and regain what we lost, but we do it wrong. So the first thing Cain does when he walks away is he, no kids here, sleeps with his wife and has children. That's a typical man thing to do, isn't it? Um, so the first thing he does is he senses, I've lost eternity. I can't live forever in the same way now. So how do we try to live forever as people? families. We perpetuate. We echo. Like we're stones and we drop ourselves into the sea of the world and hope that our ripples will go on forever like Achilles, like anyone else. So we have children hoping that our children will be echoes into the world that we won't see over and over. And why is that? Why is it that humanity has this certain sense of immortality? If you're around in the 70s, a guy named Ernest Becker won the Pulitzer Prize for a book called The Denial of Death, which Woody Allen loves. Um, and in The Denial of Death, Ernest Becker makes this incredibly poignant statement. He says, you know, people never really think they're going to die. I know if they're pressed, they'll say, yeah, I'm going to die one day. But he, all, and he see, very astutely says, you know, you always think it's somebody else's kid who gets in a car accident on the way home from school and dies. You always think it's somebody else's per, uh, brother who gets cancer. You always think it's somebody else's town that is ravaged by war. You always think it's somebody else's church that gets a terrorist attack at it. You always think it's somebody else. And he's right. Now listen to what he says. He says this narcissism is, is a good thing, but also a problem. He says, this narcissism is what keeps men marching into point-blank fire and wars. At heart, no, uh, one does not feel that he will die. He only feels sorry for the man next to him who will. In his, in his inner organic recesses, man feels immortal. This is why we write the great novel, why we try to build empires, why we have families. Um, we deep down, don't we, we really think 
You know, if you ask a child, any of your kids, if you have kids, you ask them what, you want, what they want to be when they grow up. Do you know what they never say? A mid-level manager. And that's nothing wrong. I was a mid-level manager before. I, there's nothing wrong with that. But you see, why is it that we always think, every one of you still thinks, I bet, if you had enough time and you concentrated, you could write a great novel. Don't you think that sometimes? Don't you think if you just had enough time? Why is it that we all want to be something grand? Is it just because we're evolved to think that way? Because that's what the skeptic would say to me now, and they're right to ask. So if you're a skeptic and you're here or you're listening, you'd say, Carl, are you telling me that because I yearn to exist beyond my 80 years in this world, that there is a God that correlates? I'm saying two things to you. One, yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Two, I'm saying if you don't believe me, let's look at an argument C.S. Lewis would use. You see, you living in this world as a human, every desire you have, for the most part, has satisfaction in this world. If you are hungry, there is food. If you are lonely, there are friends. If you are bored, there is distraction. But if you want to live forever, where do you find an answer for that? Because, listen, you can have a big family. I've got five kids. I'll be forgotten in at least two generations. I will be. And so will you. Very few people will be remembered. And yet, what does that tell us about ourselves? This is what it means. Because I have a desire to live forever doesn't mean that I will be live, live forever necessarily. But it does mean there's such a thing as living forever. I'll give you, C.S. Lewis says it best. If we find within ourselves a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were not made for this world. So, you don't need to agree with C.S. Lewis or me, but what you can't do is simply say, we just think it, but it's not, it's not important. It's not important. I mean, it's just an evolved instinct. It's, you're trying to ra rationalize your mortality. That's all it is. Don't do it because a scientist never does that. A scientist, good or bad, should always follow things a logical conclusion. If I walk into a forest and every single tree loses its leaves in October, and I was to go to my professor and say, doesn't mean anything, it's an accident. You know what he'd say? Every subject you encounter does the same thing and it's an accident? So if every human yearns to exist, including Cain, and builds families and legacies, can we just write it off as an organic, a flesh computer overvaluing itself? No. We must ask the question of why we do it. So the first wrong way we try to cover up and gain this loss is we try to have family. We father. We try to build, exist long beyond ourselves. The second thing Cain does after having a child is he builds a city. Okay, it's in verse 17. Now, if, if you ask an anthropologist why human beings created cities, um, the answer is this. Well, because a guy is, a family is a farming family, but they need tools. So they need to know a blacksmith. The blacksmith needs to be near a market, and the market needs to be near people. But people and markets need to be protected, so we need walls. So why do we organize in cities? Security, protection. We need to survive together. So when Cain builds a city, after having just lost the protection of God, at least so he thinks, why is he building it? And let's push it even farther. Ask the text why Cain thinks he needs security when God has just told him, no one's going to hurt you. I put a mark on you. And Cain says, yeah, I'm going to do it anyway. Just in case, God. Just in case you're not protecting me, I'm going to build this little city. Now, you and I, how do we do this? Um, oh, constantly. So, you and I now live in cities. 
nothing wrong with building a city per se. And yet, when it's the wrong motive, trying to protect what we, can, we don't trust God to do, there's a problem. So many of you are getting older, so you're building up um, nest eggs for your retirement. Nothing wrong with being thrifty and looking after your finances. But are you building it because you don't trust God to look after you? Is it possible that I, when I'm working in my corporate life before I became pastor and all these things, that I was just trying to make myself indispensable to that workplace so they'd never be able to fire me? Because I don't want to be unemployed. Is it possible that you're all, and we're all just having a sense of that in us, that we're building something that can't actually satisfy? Because that's the tragedy. Cain builds protection for himself that can't do anything. You and I, I think it's 80% of Canadians is the number, are one paycheck away from living in poverty. You and I are one diagnosis away from being depressed. You're one divorce away from being crippled emotionally. But many of us are, not just picking on anybody specific here. So, the best quote I can get to cover this and to show how futile uh, our efforts are is from Dr. Seuss. Thought I'd lighten it up a little. So I have a lot of kids, um, so I read Dr. Seuss. It's as close to literature as they get sometimes. Um, so he has one book called Yertle the Turtle. Anybody know this? So Yertle the Turtle um, is a, a turtle, obviously, um, stating the obvious. So he lives in a pond, and he decides he wants to see. So he's a king of, this, of, of the turtles, and he wants to see the extent of his grand kingdom. But he can't see enough of it because he's low to the ground. So he decides he wants to stack the turtles on one another so he can get higher and see the extent of his vast kingdom, okay? And at the very bottom of the stack, of course, there's always somebody at the bottom of the stack, is a turtle named Mac. Yes, it rhymes. That's the point. So here's what, it, what Dr. Seuss writes. But as Yertle the Turtle King lifted his hand and started to order and give the command, that plain little turtle below in the stack that plain little turtle whose name was just Mac, decided he'd taken enough, and he had. And that plain little lad got a little bit mad. And that plain little Mac did a plain little thing. He burped, and his burp shook the throne of a king. Now, I, it's juvenile, but he's right. You see what this king has done? He's built an incredible empire that can be shook by a burp of a tiny, the smallest guy in his whole kingdom. And we do that constantly. Everything you and I build is, this is hard for people unless you know a lot of John Calvin. You're going to think I'm being hard on you, but let me, let me explain this. Everything you and I build with these hands will be destroyed in the end according to Revelation 21. Okay? Everything is destroyed at the end times, and God lets down the new Jerusalem. Why does he let it down and not say build it? Because you can't build anything without your fingerprints being on it. And your fingerprints, no matter how good you try to make them, are always like Cain's. You're always just a little self-serving. And he knows it. And if you want biblical evidence other than that, go to Exodus 20, 25. God is explaining to Moses how to build the tabernacle and the altar. And he says, hey, if you're going to build me this altar, use it from one hunk of stone and do not strike it with any tools because if you do, you will profane it. What does he mean? Everything you touch, Moses, is not good. No offense. We're all in the same boat. So don't try to build something that I've told you I'm going to take care of. And we constantly try to build something. And this wandering that we have, this problem of us being looking for something firm to build on is not being helped by us looking for the wrong things to build on. So now that I have thoroughly depressed everybody, 
There will be antidepressants at the back on your way out. Um, <laughs> so if that's the wrong way to deal with things. If we know we are wandering and we all try to fill it up with spouses and work and jobs and family, um, and we wrongly are doing that, well, what's the right way? Here's the fun part. So if you look at Genesis 4, there's something incredible. See, when God shows up, first of all, what an act of grace. God doesn't wait for Abel or Cain to kill his brother before he hammers him and rebukes him. He comes before and says, careful, careful, something isn't right with you, and it's waiting to crouch at your door. You can master it, but if you don't, it's going to run away with you. So there's, and that's not in my sermon. But listen to the words that are going on. God shows up. We'll start verse, uh, second half of verse 4. And the Lord said, uh, sorry, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? Now, your face fell. You're, if you have a King James or something, it may say, why are you downcast, right? Um, fell is the right translation, to fall. That's exactly what's there in the Hebrew. What you don't see in the English translations, unless you're reading the NASB, by the way, if anyone's reading a New American Standard, other than that, every translation will say accepted, wherever, up there. What is actually there, you may have a footnote in your Bible that says it. It says, lift it up. Your face will be lifted up. What God is saying is your face is downcast. Something you have done, Cain. The way you have chosen to try to worship me has left your face downcast. If you do well, will they not be lifted up? So there's a face thing going on. Remember, he's driven from his face. There's a lot of this conversation happening. So what we need to ask is, what is it in Cain's life, in his heart, that has caused him to be downcast but able to be up? You see, because if you and I are sitting watching Abel and Cain bring their offering, you probably don't know which is which because on the surface they look exactly the same. There's people in this church right now, pious and not so pious, and they look exactly the same to Carl because you're doing the same things. You're worshiping, you're coming to church, you're giving your offerings, and yet God says, some people, it's not just your offering I don't like. He had no regard for Cain and his offering. Why is it both? Because something in Cain's life is not worshiping God properly. If the meaning of life is lost when we leave God, surely the meaning has to be that we surrender back and come back into God's presence. And how do we do that? How do we do it? If we do well, it will be, you'll be accepted. See, you and I think, if, if we do well, we'll be accepted. And you right away will say, well, means helping old ladies across the street and uh, sponsoring children who need food in Africa. This is what we think about doing well. Stop. Don't stop that right there. Because the context of what God is saying is about worship. You brought an offering to me. I don't accept it. If you did well in that context, I would accept it. You would be fine. You'd be able to look at me. Your face would be restored to me. But what you have done now by not giving me everything, by not giving me all of you, is it's caused you to put your face down and you don't see me. Careful. Careful, because if you let yourself run with that, you're going to be in trouble. So what is the source? What is the answer to this? Why is it that everywhere in the Bible, well, first let's look at this as well really quickly. Abel and Cain knew there was a Messiah coming. In Genesis 3, God is very clear. One day I'm going to send somebody who's going to stomp on the head of the serpent. Abel and Cain knew God had a plan. Abel recognizes the plan and says, I'm going to worship him because it's all okay because he has said so. Cain, somewhere along the way, doesn't honor that plan and offers something a little bit less. 
and we look at how we get this. What is the answer? Where do we find meaning if it's not in things, in each other? The Bible, whenever God is asked, whenever Jesus is asked, both Old and New Testament say the same thing to the answer of what is the most important thing. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, why would they say all four of those things? Because um, it's called a merism. So if you know literature, a merism is when you use two extremes to denote totality. Sorry, that's big wording. What it means is this. Oh, I worked, I worked day and night. Well, no, I didn't. It just means I worked really hard. And I, we, we use extreme language to mean everything. I worked all day, which... So we use that language. And when God is saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he's saying with everything that's in you. With your heart is your emotions. Your mind is your intellect. Your strength is your work. And your soul is that part of you that Sylvia Plath wants, that transcendence, that sense that you have that surely there's more to this. And God is saying, you must surrender all of those to me or you'll never be happy. And you'd say, well, it's a little extreme, isn't it, Carl? Yes, but this is why. If I attempt, see, I'm a nerd, and my tendency is if I'm left to my own devices, I want to believe that God exists only so that I can study him. I want to put him under a glass like a little uh, an insect and just watch him so I have clever things to tell you. That's what I want. And I will ignore or lessen those other parts of me that need just as much satisfaction. I do need to be emotionally stable. I need to have work that matters. I need to have something that exists beyond me. I want to live forever. I, and so if I'm only focusing on one, if I only come to God and say, God, I'm opening up my doors to you, but I'm only opening this one, the intellect. Well, the moment something happens in my life that rocks my emotions, where's my foundation? It's not there because I only surrender to God my nerdiness, my intellect. If you're a person who loves the worship that happens up here, it's good. Nothing wrong with loving worship. But if that is the only part of you that you really surrender to God, you're going to be struck. Every time somebody comes with a clever argument against the existence of God, you're going to be shook. I never thought of that. Every time you, um, you see your business collapse, you're going to think, what have I been living for? I'm not. You have to surrender all of it. Until you find that one thing that satisfies all of you, you're basically wasting your time. You're like Cain at that moment. And here, and somebody, this is the last point. Somebody may say, but why Jesus? Aren't there so many others? Why is it Christ? Why have you set your flag in this part of the ground? Isn't there other, aren't there other religions that are equally valid? Well, no, there's not. Um, and if you say they're all the same, well, aren't all religions ultimately the same? Um, go ask a Muslim if all religions are the same. Go ask a devout Hindu if all the religions are the same. When we say all religions are the same, you betray an incredible ignorance of all religions. They're not the same. And this is the difference. Only the Bible tries to answer this question, and this is how it answers it. It's in Christ. I'm not very unique, by the way. Every week I'm going to say the same thing to you. If you go to Mark 15, I think they're going to put it up here for us. And I know we just passed um, Easter, but we're going to end with this. Um, if we look here, you see the point. Why Christ? Why is it that only in him we find meaning? Here's why. Let's read it. When, this, uh, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. 
And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let's see if whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who, saw, who stood facing him saw, uh, saw, saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was a son of God. The reason Christ is the only thing that will satisfy you is exactly there. Because he, unlike Cain, did everything right. He knew he was a wanderer in the world. He was set here to be a wanderer. But he didn't build cities. He didn't try to build families in the same way we did. He honored God at every moment. And when he looked to have his face turned up towards God and cries out to God, he hears nothing. Nothing. God doesn't answer him. And yet, right after he dies, what is the moment after Christ dies, we look at this. The centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last and said, truly, this is the man that was a son of God. He heard nothing when he looked and had his face to God so that when the centurion right afterwards looks at God, he sees everything. And that is why you and I exist, not to build wonderful things. We exist to worship him. This is not a new sermon. I could have just read the Westminster Catechism to you. What is the chief end of man? Let me know it. Who's any good Presbyterians here? Who? To love to worship God and to serve him forever. This is it. That's why we exist. And until we get that right, you're going to be frustrated by your job and your spouse. As wonderful as my wife is, she's not Jesus. Is what? It's not f- you didn't think you were, did you? Okay, good. <laughs> I almost had to go to therapy right here. Um, and that's the point: is that there is a point in this world. There is meaning, but it's it's only in one place. And so long as we don't get it, we'll be Cain. We'll be wandering, tiny bubbles floating on the sea of nothingness. But the moment we recognize what happened on the cross for us, you'll look up. And much like that centurion, you will see everything. That's it. Let's worship, or let's pray. You can worship too after, I suppose. Father, thank you, Lord. Thank you for the story of Cain and Abel. Thank you that um, you were there for Cain, that he didn't see it, that we don't see it nearly often enough, Lord, but that you, um, you care for us. You're always there, that you put these echoes in our hearts. The reason we want to build empires is because there is that reminder of you in us, God, you're always trying to lure us towards you. Help those of us who haven't seen it. And if there's some areas of our lives where we haven't surrendered um, completely to you and looked for you to be that satisfaction we need, show them to us this week. And if there's anyone here or listening or anything that um, doesn't know you, God, I pray that this would just challenge them to look deeper. That like a scientist, they would look at you and simply ask questions and wait for you to give answers. That is what we're called to do. Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for what you've done for us. And we ask this all in Jesus' name.